Hello, this is Michael Melfi, and welcome to the Be Investable podcast, a series where I speak with innovative individuals who share their insights about what it means to be investable. Welcome back to another episode of the Be Investable podcast. And today we have a special guest, Mr. Richard Swart, joining us. Over his years, he's worked with leading universities like Cal, Stanford, and Wharton, and top accelerators like Y Combinator, Techstars, and 50 Startups. He works with angel funds, family offices, and other investors, focusing on applying cutting-edge technology to solve many of the structural problems with venture capital. And he's focused on creating pathways for truly inclusive and outcome-based access to capital. I cannot wait to talk with him today and have you guys hear a little bit of what he has to say. He's going to bring a ton of wisdom from what he's done advising, consulting, working with family offices, large funds, and major international foundations such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation. He also has experience. He's going to share a little bit about the Fortune 500 companies such as the World Bank and the national governments and some of the global research institutions he's worked for. Without any further ado, I want to hop right in and welcome Richard to the show. I want Thank you for joining us on the show, Richard, and uh, looking forward to diving in and talking with you about some really exciting things around entrepreneurship, early stage investing, and innovation. Yeah, look forward to it. Thanks, Michael. Awesome. And, and I think, uh, let, me, let me ask you, obviously, you're out in the Bay Area, but how did you get into all this? What drew you to, to really this early stage investing and entrepreneurial ecosystem? Uh, the really short version is I had been part of a startup attack. Uh, early exit, batting a single as a venture capitalist would say. And then I created another startup and didn't do so well the second time. And I got fascinated by the learning curve of entrepreneurs and what it takes to be successful and why a former professor with a PhD in business could blow it so remarkably on a startup. So I spent about a year, um, startup founders get support. Then I created a network for entrepreneurs that ended up being the fastest growing network for business and meetup history. Mm. And approached me and said, look, you're really passionate about helping other entrepreneurs come work for me with my family office and let's figure out some programs and resources that we can do to help other entrepreneurs. And that was the beginning of a pivot from being an academic to somebody sort of working in the ecosystem of entrepreneurship. Awesome. Awesome. And, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to dive right and ask the question, is there something, is it an attribute, is it a trader? What makes successful entrepreneurs from what, from what you said? Our experience at CrowdSmart is that 90% of the problems that we see aren't the technology or the vision or it's the actual business model and focus on fundamentals. And the vast majority of companies fail not because the technology isn't good, but because they don't understand their market and their business model really isn't sustainable. Got it. And so, I mean, we're, we, you alluded to CrowdSmart a little bit. Do you, you want to go ahead and share a little bit about what CrowdSmart is and share a little bit about how, how it works? Yeah, CrowdSmart is an investment platform. Think of us as being sort of a second cousin to AngelList. So family offices, institutional investors, angel investors can cooperatively to evaluate early stage startups. And then we have the first score that predicts the likelihood of a startup scaling and succeeding. It's an actual prediction that we generate out of our artificial intelligence system. So we augment AI with human input. It's called collective intelligence. And the combination of the two is about 30% better than the best AI. So we actually score startups. Think about a FICO score for a startup. And based on that FICO score, if they pass our criteria, our investors then write a check. And we do this whole process in about 30 days to a check in the hand of the startup founders, 30 days. So if someone's listening right now and they say, wait a minute, I want to know what my score would be. They just go to the website and they can... Right now, the way that it works is we only accept referrals 
from our partners. Our partners include 500 Startups, Stanford's Accelerator, Berkeley's Accelerator, MIT, Evo Nexus, RGA, Techstars. So basically the top 5% of accelerators look at. And the reason they do that is in addition to our money, our process generates about 15,000 words of structured feedback that we give to the startup founders. It allows them to focus their attention on things and those things that cause investors to have concerns. And what we hear from startups is if they go into an accelerator or they go to office hours or they're part of a co-working space, they just get barraged with dozens or hundreds of pieces of feedback and they don't know which mentors or which experts to listen to. So one guy says, go to China immediately. One guy says, never go to China. One guy says, focus on product. One guy says, focus on revenue. So we provide a focusing function. So the bottom line is no, a startup cannot apply to Today, at some point, we will release a product or a tool that allows sort of a best guess or an indicator of your likelihood of how you would score. So it's not going to be a complete evaluation because our process takes 30 humans to generate a full score. But we are going to be releasing sort of an early likelihood um, probably in the middle of 2019. Got it, got it. Well, that, that is very exciting, and, and I think that some of my listeners would love to to learn more about that when the timing is right, obviously. I, and they can register at crowdsmart.io right now and just keep an eye, and we have a newsletter, so I mean, we okay. don't sell anything, so they're certainly welcome to keep tabs on what we're doing and you know, look out for that opportunity when it comes. That'd be great, that'd be great. And then, and obviously, you're dealing with, whether it be angel funds, family offices, other institutional investors, they're coming, they're looking for certain things in these projects. Is, is there a common thread of what they are looking for? Is there a certain industry you're finding they're looking in? Or what are those, if there was a few levers that you can talk about, obviously it's not proprietary to your analysis, but are there certain things you are looking for that you would say are the most important as people are listening and, and looking at whether or not they have what it takes to be investable? Uh, the first indicator is, frankly, who you can recruit as an advisor or early investor. That's an incredibly strong signal to the market that you have an idea that's worth pursuing. So getting that first investor or first strategic advisor on board who will be the person, whether he or she is an, you know, directly investor, just invest their time and energy. You have to have someone early on in the team that really tells the market this person is serious or something to pay attention to here. Secondly, the idea of getting funded pre-revenue is pretty much dead. You have to show traction. You have to show momentum in the market these days to really get much interest. Thirdly, even though I'm very deeply involved in blockchain myself, don't just become the blockchain of X like the Uber of X. There's so many companies that are naively <laughs> and simplistically trying to pivot and you know go down that path. And it really isn't critical to their business model. Sure. And they're just trying to ride a wave. I would say steer away from that unless it really is core to your model. The other thing is you have to have a very strong understanding of the cost of customer acquisition and the lifetime value of your customer if, if you're in a B2C model. A lot of entrepreneurs still have a very limited understanding of the sales process and the customer acquisition process. And that'll kill you because an investor is going to dive very deeply into your ability to scale and grow. And if you don't understand the cost of scaling and growth, you're never going to get their money. So that second one you talked about, the pre-revenue and the traction, can you just kind of dive in and talk a little bit more about that? So what does that, what does that look like? What type, is it hitting certain milestones? Is it reaching a certain number of users? Or is it, hey, we need to really see sales coming in the door? I don't think there's any hard and fast number, but with the cost of, of launching and the cost of testing and building MVP being so low nowadays, yeah. the vast majority of companies are going out for their seed round post-revenue, not even their A round. So 
you know, we looked at a company yesterday that is already generating 1.5 million a year in revenue and they're going out for their seed round. So that's not a typical in today's market, whereas sure. three or five years ago, that would have been an A or a B. Yeah. So the revenue expectations are much higher. The traction expectations are much higher. Entrepreneurs really have to be able to demonstrate that they have proven momentum and, you know, whether it's MRR or some other indicator, you have to show significant growth to really attract attention. There's so many good technology companies out there, but there's not that many companies that have proven the ability to scale and grow. Got it. I want to ask you, you, you get to work a lot with family offices, some great international foundations, and whether it be the Rockefeller Foundation or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you're actively working with them. What type of businesses do you see that those larger players are looking for in the ecosystem? Or is there certain areas that they, you see there's a gap right now that, that if someone was saying, I'm looking to go into, you'd say, this is where I see some areas right now for future growth? Well, there's two very different markets, the foundations, and I've done everything from Bill Gates, World Bank, and everything in between. Mm -hmm. But most of that work has been focused around helping them understand how to leverage new technologies to predict which trends or new markets. And a market doesn't necessarily mean a for-profit market. It could mean water technology that pulls water out of the, out of the air to deal with water crises. They're, they're looking to identify truly disruptive companies that can attack major, major global issues, and they are spraying money around trying to increase innovation. Now, the other thing we're seeing is a huge focus on the funding of women entrepreneurs and founders and founders of color. So these, there's robust research, I won't bother your readers, but basically women and minorities get shafted in venture capital, just to put it bluntly. Very little likely most firms will fund you. And so a lot of these foundations are looking at creating programs to support entrepreneurs and accelerators or incubation centers around the world. Like one of my friends was in Malaysia working with women doing halal businesses in Malaysia yesterday. So, I mean, that's an example of the type of work that's getting funded. But there's sort of this sense that technology is accelerating so rapidly, it's impossible to just fund an internal R&D team or to keep Mm -hmm. your eye on the innovation. So there's this necessity of foundations and companies linking to global networks of entrepreneurs to really keep pulse on what the most innovative ideas are. So one point there is most of these foundations don't accept and really don't want you to apply for their money. They're out there scouring events and scouring the web, looking for people talking about interesting things they're doing. So they need to find you as opposed to you knocking on their door. Hmm. Interesting. I thank you for that clarification and that insight around that. You know, you alluded to women and founders of color and just how, how much of a challenge it is that we face in the entrepreneur ecosystem. And I want to talk to you a little about, about that. But before we dive into that, you make an interesting statement. On, I saw it online. You, you said that the flight of capital out of early stage investing is, is a massive threat to the economic growth. And I want to talk a little bit about that and what you mean when you, you say that. I, I get it. And I just want to talk because I think it's such an important point of just how critical that early stage investing is. And just thought you could maybe give some color to that point before we hop into the, the women and founders of color. Yeah, I'll I'll tell a story which tells the story really well. I got a call from one of the foundations saying that, uh, I won't use names, but the the gentleman who was just leaving the Secretary of Defense under President Obama wanted to talk to me. I was like, what possible relevance do I have to the Secretary of Defense? And he was joining a think tank where they were looking at long-term threats to America. And they had identified entrepreneurship, small business creation, and innovation, or the lack thereof, 
as being one of the most critical long-term threats to the growth of America. Mm -hmm. And they believe that, and they've done a lot of research that shows that the rate of entrepreneurship, the actual rate of the creation of innovative companies has been on a dramatic 30-year-plus decline in the United States, if you look at it per capita. There's also been a drastic decrease in the amount of funding available to early-stage companies from banks. Bank lending to small businesses essentially doesn't exist in a lot of markets until you have Mm -hmm. growth. So the structure of bank lending and the structure of SBA lending and just the reality is if you, you know, take away the Bay Area, you take away Los Angeles, take away Boston, take away Austin, you know, maybe the eight or 10 entrepreneurial clusters in America, mm-hmm. the rate of company formation is really in decline precipitously for many years. So the challenge for the American economy is the Fortune 500 has been a net job destroyer over the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. All new job creation has come from entrepreneurship and small business in the last 50 years in America. So if you look at the net aggregated over all job creation and growth, so small businesses are not being created. We have two problems. One is we're not creating new jobs. And secondly, small businesses are wonderful training centers. You join a small business, you can learn 10 or 15 different skill sets really quickly, especially if you're in a startup. You have to pivot. You have to learn. People have to roll their sleeves and they figure out how to get things done. Also, if you're the average kid coming out of Omaha, not with a 4.0 out of MIT, you're probably not getting a job at Google. So that average kid needs a place where he or she can really dive in and acquire job skills. And oftentimes, small businesses and entrepreneurial centers and startups are where people can really expand and grow and learn things, as opposed to being in the corporate cog. So it's both a matter of a training and skill deficit as well as a long-term threat to the American economy. I think right now we're ranked 13th globally in entrepreneurship, and most people would assume we're number one. Mm Mm-hmm. And the reality is, I would expect by the year 2022, that we'll be about 20th. We're being eclipsed dramatically by Asian countries. So if they are doing the research, they're doing the innovation, they're creating the new companies, and they're creating the next business models, what does that mean for America? It's It's a worrisome thought, to say the least, when you pose it that way. And that's why I wanted to ask you about that so much. Is there, I mean, obviously, you are in these conversations. Is there something that we can be doing at a more micro level? Can the local cities or regions be doing anything? Can state governments be doing anything right now to help with that? Or is this a federal crisis we got to deal with? Yes, all of, the, all of the above. I mean, at the national level, our government's in extreme disarray. You can blame other side of the fence, but it's just not working. So I'm not even going to pretend that the federal government can really do a lot at this point. I think most solutions are going to have to be local. Yeah. And what we found is that the vast majority of programs that train entrepreneurs are very ineffective. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is actually counterintuitively, they provide too much information too fast. So the average American is illiterate financially. The average American reads at a seventh grade level, and the average American doesn't understand anything about how to start a business. So let's take your brake mechanic who wants to open up a brake shop, your waitress who wants to be a caterer, not high-tech, high-growth Silicon Valley with the average person you pluck off the street. If that person wants entrepreneurship training, they're going to have a very hard time finding anything that they can read or understand. So the problem is a lot of the incubators and co-working spaces very quickly just turn into real estate plays. Mm-hmm. It's all about butts and seats, people in desks, and keeping the rent on. And you really don't see a lot of impact. I did some work for the World Bank, and they finance over 1,200 incubators and accelerators around the world. And they found that less than 2% of them really have measurable long-term impact. Wow. So in the accelerator space or incubator space, only the very top, very small 5 10% really add a lot of value. But everyone's creating them without really understanding the sauce of what makes them work. And a lot of that sauce is creating conditions where people have to learn and they have to be scrappy. Ultimately, a lot of entrepreneurship is the ability to learn in in adversity, which is why a lot of ex-athletes and a lot of ex-military people do really well because they understand how to continue in the face of adversity. 
So I'm, I, I'm a contrarian. I was lecturing at the University of Cairo for the World Bank, and everything I said was the opposite of what they expected. Hmm. And it was, you know, you need to focus on the behavioral psychology and the attitudes and the skill sets that make someone a good entrepreneur, just like you would train someone to be a good athlete. There are certain muscles you need to learn as an entrepreneur that oftentimes aren't exercised very well. I couldn't agree more. You know, we won't go down necessarily that road, but I, we, when I talk with entrepreneurs, a lot of the stuff we do around Be Investable is so much around how you can do that training to really strengthen, as we call it, that mental muscle. Yeah, same. Uh, yeah. We're on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because as you look at it, you see that there are a lot of people that want to do entrepreneurship, but it's much different to be an entrepreneur and be in entrepreneurship. And so to hear you say that is very interesting because I think there are some great opportunities to really focus on that the emerging companies. It's, it's interesting. I, I think most people came in listening and even wanting to talk in this conversation thought we were going to talk to them about high tech companies coming out of Silicon Valley because that would be the natural place for us to go with this conversation. But there's really so much that can be done, as you're alluding to, the economic impact of the brake mechanic who wants to start a business who maybe is going to create something using some technology to move the business along. That's where a lot of the jobs in the economy is being created in our country right now. Middle America person who's out there looking for a job creates such a big impact on the economy. It's, it's how do we continue to promote that is really an important question to be asking. It's complex Conflict problem has been the last 15 years of my life trying to figure out how to address it. The, the, the really fast answers are high growth, high potential companies are going to be well taken care of by the venture capital space. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's really a high growth company, there is so much money chasing innovation right now. Obviously, there's tons of resources and I'm sure you've done interviews on how to get attention of a VC and how to pitch and all the mechanics. But if you really have a high growth company, you will find the money. The question is, what if you have a $50 million company or a $20 million company? or something that's interesting and sustainable and can have 15 or 20 employees, but you're never going to make a billion dollars. Right. That's where it's crowdfunding or bank lending or revenue-based finance or a secure token offering or these other alternative investment vehicles. That's where you need help. And the problem is there's so much misinformation, bad information, charlatanism in, in sort of that early stage space that's really hard to know whom you can trust and who the good resources are. Mm -hmm. And then as a city or a state or an economic development group, the question is, how do we identify and help those entrepreneurs? And oftentimes the default is send them to the SBA or send them to the small business development centers. And unfortunately that doesn't work most of the time. So there needs to be this gap of focusing on not just the high growth companies, but sort of that middle growth, middle market, middle growth companies. Mm -hmm. And that's oftentimes neglected. Now, Miami's done a phenomenal job in the last few years of turning themselves around. They're on fire. Chicago's doing an amazing job. Boulder, Colorado, with Brad Feld's leadership over the last 25 years, has done an amazing job. The National Entrepreneur Center, EC.co, is probably one of the nation's top. But in every one of those cases, you see a really well-thought-out strategy of pipelining the right resources to the right entrepreneurs at the right time, guided by one or two key people in the community that have deep experience. And it's very hard to just, you know, load in with some money from the state to partner with the university and create a program that's actually going to have impact. You have to have like a 20-year plan for something like this to really work. And Brad's been writing about that extensively on his blog. So lots of good information on Brad Feld's website, bradfeld.com. Awesome. Thank you for that insight. And, you know, I said we were going to talk about it briefly. I, I would love to. I, obviously, you, you, you not only have some passion about it, but a lot of knowledge around the ability to include women and founders of color into businesses, because it has been, as we alluded to earlier in this conversation, it's been something that's been neglected to quite some extreme. Any insight or any clarity you can give around that topic and any, any suggestions for the ecosystem or ecosystems that want to make an impact and change that area? 
Well, a couple of real key insights. First, we've got to brag a little bit. CrowdSmart, 41% of our money has gone to women and 56% of our money has gone to women or minority founders. We're not an impact focused fund. We're looking at the fundamentals of businesses. But the question is, why does our process yield so much investment in women and founders of color and other venture capital firms don't? And the answer is, our due diligence is very narrowly focused on fundamentals. There's a lot of sort of subjective social network-based analysis. I golfed with this guy at Stanford, my son's kid, was a roommate of this person somewhere else. There's a lot of factors that are put into an investment decision that have literally nothing to do with the underlying quality of the company. And the second is there is just some overt bias that needs to be called out. One of our founders is a Filipino woman with a degree in physics from Berkeley. Her co-founder is a Chinese male, also a degree in physics from Berkeley. Nobody has ever asked in due diligence, is your degree real? Did you study physics to the male? But she constantly gets questioned, did you really study physics? Do you really have a degree from Berkeley? Even with investor groups in the Bay Area. So what we're finding is this sort of racism and sexism still permeates so much of our culture. And so what I typically do is I call it out. I'll go to a conference and I'll literally say, when's the last time you confronted somebody else on the investment committee? How many women are on the investment committee? How many minorities are on your investment committee? If we don't strategically and deliberately talk about these factors and intentionally bring people into the decision-making roles, we have a huge problem. The Coffin Fellows Program is attacking it. You also have some females investing in female you know, platform Springboard, Astia, Portfolio.com, Elevest. There's lots of ways for women to get involved. But the women helping women move in is probably 10 to 15 years more advanced than, than founders of color helping other founders of color. And that's a huge challenge. As a white straight male, I probably can't have a lot of impact as a role model, but I can certainly call it out as something needs to be focused on. Got it. And for those people who are listening who, who want to have an impact, maybe have an, have an opportunity or have the resources, what do you think is, what's the best next steps for someone out there who says, I want to make an impact in that area? Well, a couple of things, you know, find high capacity entrepreneurs and devote a lot of time and attention to mentoring them, not just showing up at coffee hours and not just showing up to meet up and chatting with people, but actually take people under your wing. And then secondly, every board you're on, every organization you have a leadership role in, actually do an analysis. If I physically walk in the room and look, does it look like we're committed to diversity? And if you can't represent diversity on your own leadership, how do you manifest that to the market? So this is, you know, you have to basically call out the other leaders in your organizations and then deliberately invest in and be public about the fact that you're investing in certain companies just to be a role model in your community. There are lots of organizations out there, which we don't have time to go into in the next two minutes, but there are lots of groups focused on minority entrepreneurship. Unfortunately, what we found is that, you know, picking on, you know, African-Americans helping African-Americans or Latinos helping Latinos, these sort of very specific affinity circles typically don't work as well as more broader geographically based models. Mm-hmm. The work in your community, figure out who the innovators are in your community and how to support them. Awesome. I cannot thank you enough for all this insight. And like I said, I, I know that some of our listeners were expecting to get how to go find a, an early stage investor in Silicon Valley when they see your name and thought we were talking. I, I love that we've been able to really bounce around to some of these because I think you've brought a lot of insight. And I would ask in two wrapping up questions is if you had to define, and I think you alluded to this when, when you used the word resourceful, but if you had to allude, if you had to define one or two attributes that, that are what is key to success as an entrepreneur, what would they be to you? These are two sides of the same thing. Coachability and learning. So the ability to take feedback and directly apply that feedback. I have both taught entrepreneurship at the university level and mentored people and been in startups. And there are so many entrepreneurs that truly are not coachable. So you have to be willing to learn. And then secondly, be scrappy. I cannot believe how many entrepreneurs look for the $100,000 solution when maybe a $5,000 bootstrap would work better. And I think there's so, so much emphasis on 
appearance and so much emphasis on entrepreneurship as a culture or as an identity as opposed to as a set of techniques that you use to build for the long term. So I really encourage people to focus on just getting the fundamentals right, understanding your customer, understanding your revenue models, understanding your sales process. A lot of the less sexy, less fun stuff is where people fall down. Awesome. And the last question I always ask, this is the Be Investable podcast. What does, when you hear Be Investable, what does that mean to you? It means that you have really thought through all the questions that an investor is going to ask you and you have dedicated the time, energy, and resources to having your team aligned around those answers. Oftentimes, the CEO has one answer, the CFO has another answer, the chief technologist has a different answer, and your team isn't consistent or aligned. And that's the first thing I look for when I am doing diligence on a company is I'll talk to everybody, and if we're not operating on the same storybook and playbook, I know they don't have good leadership. Awesome. Well, Richard, I cannot thank you enough for your time today and joining us on the podcast. Loved having you, and thanks for coming on the show. That's been fun. Thanks, Michael. Awesome. Well, there you have it, the latest episode of the Be Investable podcast. Until next time, stay investable. In the meantime, check out our magazine by going to www.getinvestable.com forward slash magazine and subscribe for a free issue. Additionally, you can find more great content through our amazing media partners such as Cranes Business Detroit, Huffington Post, Michigan Business Network, Mishapreneur, Smart Hustle Magazine, and Startup Nation. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to talking with you soon.